Section 3 of Natural Theology by William Paley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 Application of the Argument, Part 1. This is atheism. For every indication of contrivance, every manifestation of design which existed in the watch, exists in the works of nature, with the difference, on the side of nature, of being greater and more, and that in a degree which exceeds all computation. I mean that the contrivances of nature surpass the contrivances of art in the complexity, subtlety, and curiosity of the mechanism, and still more, if possible, do they go beyond them in number and variety. Yet, in a multitude of cases, are not less evidently mechanical, not less evidently contrivances, not less evidently accommodated to their end, or suited to their office, than are the most perfect productions of human ingenuity. I know no better method of introducing so large a subject than that of comparing a single thing with a single thing, an eye, for example, with a telescope. As far as the examination of the instrument goes, there is precisely the same proof that the eye was made for vision as there is that the telescope was made for assisting it. They are made upon the same principles, both being adjusted to the laws by which the transmission and refraction of rays of light are regulated. I speak not of the origin of the laws themselves, but, such laws being fixed, the construction in both cases is adapted to them. For instance, these laws require, in order to produce the same effect, that the rays of light, in passing from water into the eye, should be refracted by a more convex surface than when it passes out of air into the eye. Accordingly, we find that the eye of a fish, in that part of it called the crystalline lens, is much rounder than the eye of terrestrial animals. What plainer manifestation of design can there be than this difference? What could a mathematical instrument maker have done more to show his knowledge of his principle, his application of that knowledge, his suiting of his means to his end? I will not say to display the compass or excellence of his skill and art, for in these all comparison is indecorous, but to testify counsel, choice, consideration, purpose. To some it may appear a difference sufficient to destroy all similitude between the eye and the telescope, that the one is a perceiving organ, the other an unperceiving instrument. The fact is that they are both instruments, and as to the mechanism, at least as to mechanism being employed, and even as to the kind of it, this circumstance varies not the analogy at all. For observe what the constitution of the eye is. It is necessary, in order to produce distinct vision, that an image or picture of the object be formed at the bottom of the eye. Whence this necessity arises, or how the picture is connected with the sensation, or contributes to it, it may be difficult, nay, we will confess, if you please, impossible for us to search out. But the present question is not concerned in the inquiry. It may be true that, in this, and in other instances, we trace mechanical contrivance a certain way, and that then we come to something which is not mechanical, or which is inscrutable. But this affects not the certainty of our investigation as far as we have gone. The difference between an animal and an automatic statue consists in this, that in the animal we trace the mechanism to a certain point, and then we are stopped, either the mechanism becoming too subtle for our discernment, or something else beside the known laws of mechanism taking place. Whereas, in the automaton, for the comparatively few motions of which it is capable, we trace the mechanism throughout. But, up to the limit, the reasoning is as clear and certain in the one case as in the other. In the example before us, it is a matter of certainty, because it is a matter which experience and observation demonstrate, 
that the formation of an image at the bottom of the eye is necessary to perfect vision. The image itself can be shown. Whatever affects the distinctness of the image affects the distinctness of the vision. The formation, then, of such an image being necessary, no matter how, to the sense of sight and to the exercise of that sense, the apparatus by which it is formed is constructed and put together not only with infinitely more art, but upon the self-same principles of art as in the telescope or the camera obscura. The perception arising from the image may be laid out of the question. For the production of the image, these are instruments of the same kind. The end is the same, the means are the same. The purpose in both is alike. The contrivance for accomplishing that purpose is in both alike. The lenses of the telescope and the humors of the eye bear a complete resemblance to one another in their figure, their position, and in their power over the rays of light, viz. in bringing each pencil to a point at the right distance from the lens, namely in the eye, at the exact place where the membrane is spread to receive it. How is it possible, under circumstances of such close affinity, and under the operation of equal evidence, to exclude contrivance from the one, yet to acknowledge the proof of contrivance having been employed as the plainest and clearest of all propositions in the other? The resemblance between the two cases is still more accurate, and obtains in more points than we have yet represented, or than we are, on the first view of the subject, aware of. In dioptric telescopes there is an imperfection of this nature. Pencils of light, in passing through glass lenses, are separated into different colors, thereby tinging the object, especially the edges of it, as if it were viewed through a prism. To correct this inconvenience had been long a desideratum in the art. At last it came into the mind of a sagacious optician to inquire how this matter was managed in the eye, in which there was exactly the same difficulty to contend with as in the telescope. His observation taught him that, in the eye, the evil was cured by combining lenses composed of different substances, i.e., of substances which possessed different refracting powers. Our artist borrowed thence his hint, and produced a correction of the defect by imitating, in glasses made from different materials, the effects of the different humors through which the rays of light pass before they reach the bottom of the eye. Could this be in the eye without purpose, which suggested to the optician the only effectual means of attaining that purpose? But further, there are other points, not so much perhaps of strict resemblance between the two, as of superiority of the eye over the telescope, yet of a superiority which, being founded in the laws that regulate both, may furnish topics of fair and just comparison. Two things were wanted to the eye which were not wanted, at least in the same degree, to the telescope, and these were the adaptation of the organ first to different degrees of light, and secondly, to the vast diversity of distance at which objects are viewed by the naked eye, viz., from a few inches to as many miles. These difficulties present not themselves to the maker of the telescope. He wants all the light he can get, and he never directs his instrument to objects near at hand. In the eye, both these cases were to be provided for, and for the purpose of providing for them, a subtle and appropriate mechanism is introduced. 1. In order to exclude excess of light when it is excessive, and to render objects visible under obscurer degrees of it when no more can be had, the hole or aperture in the eye through which the light enters is so formed as to contract or dilate itself for the purpose of admitting a greater or less number of rays at the same time. The chamber of the eye is a camera obscura, which, when the light is too small, can enlarge its opening, when too strong, can again contract it, and that without any other assistance than that of its own exquisite machinery. It is further also, in the human subject, to be observed, 
that this hole in the eye, which we call the pupil, under all its different dimensions, retains its exact circular shape. This is a structure extremely artificial. Let an artist only try to execute the same. He will find that his threads and strings must be disposed with great consideration and contrivance to make a circle which shall continually change its diameter yet preserve its form. This is done in the eye by an application of fibers, i.e. of strings, similar in their position and action, to what an artist would and must employ if he had the same piece of workmanship to perform. 2. The second difficulty which has been stated was the suiting of the same organ to the perception of objects that lie near at hand within a few inches, we will suppose, of the eye, and of objects which are placed at a considerable distance from it, that, for example, of as many furlongs. I speak in both cases of the distance at which distinct vision can be exercised. Now this, according to the principles of optics, that is, according to the laws by which the transmission of light is regulated, and these laws are fixed, could not be done without the organ itself undergoing an alteration and receiving an adjustment that might correspond with the exigency of the case, that is to say, with the different inclination to one another under which the rays of light reach it. Rays issuing from points placed at a small distance from the eye, and which consequently must enter the eye in a spreading or diverging order, cannot, by the same optical instrument in the same state, be brought to a point, i.e., be made to form an image, in the same place with rays proceeding from objects situated at a much greater distance, and which rays arrive at the eye in directions nearly, and physically speaking, parallel. It requires a rounder lens to do it. The point of concourse behind the lens must fall critically upon the retina, or the vision is confused. Yet, other things remaining the same, this point, by the immutable properties of light, is carried further back when the rays proceed from a near object than when they are sent from one that is remote. A person who is using an optical instrument would manage this matter by changing, as the occasion required, his lens or his telescope, or by adjusting the distance of his glasses with his hand or his screw. But how is it to be managed in the eye? What the alteration was, or in what part of the eye it took place, or by what means it was effected, for if the known laws which govern the refraction of light be maintained, some alteration in the state of the organ there must be, had long formed a subject of inquiry and conjecture. The change, though sufficient for the purpose, is so minute as to elude ordinary observation. Some very late discoveries, deduced from a laborious and most accurate inspection of the structure and operation of the organ, seem at length to have ascertained the mechanical alteration which the parts of the eye undergo. It is found that by the action of certain muscles, called the straight muscles, and which action is the most advantageous that could be imagined for the purpose, it is found, I say, that whenever the eye is directed to a near object, three changes are produced in it at the same time, all severally contributing to the adjustment required. The cornea, or outermost coat of the eye, is rendered more round and prominent. The crystalline lens underneath is pushed forward, and the axis of vision, as the depth of the eye is called, is elongated. These changes in the eye vary its power over the rays of light in such a manner and degree as to produce exactly the effect which is wanted, viz. the formation of an image upon the retina, whether the rays come to the eye in a state of divergency, which is the case when the object is near to the eye, or come parallel to one another, which is the case when the object is placed at a distance. Can anything be more decisive of contrivance than this is? The most secret laws of optics must have been known to the author of a structure endowed with such a capacity of change. It is as though an optician, 
when he had a nearer object to view, should rectify his instrument by putting in another glass, at the same time drawing out also his tube to a different length. Observe a newborn child first lifting up its eyelids. What does the opening of the curtain discover? The anterior part of two pellucid globes, which, when they come to be examined, are found to be constructed upon strict optical principles, the self-same principles upon which we ourselves construct optical instruments. We find them perfect for the purpose of forming an image by refraction, composed of parts executing different offices, one part having fulfilled its office upon the pencil of light, delivering it over to the action of another part, that to a third, and so onward, the progressive action depending for its success upon the nicest and minutest adjustment of the parts concerned, yet these parts so in fact adjusted as to produce not by a simple action or effect, but by a combination of actions and effects, the result which is ultimately wanted. And forasmuch as this organ would have to operate under different circumstances, with strong degrees of light and with weak degrees, upon near objects and upon remote ones, and these differences demanded, according to the laws by which the transmission of light is regulated, a corresponding diversity of structure, that the aperture, for example, through which the light passes should be larger or less, the lenses rounder or flatter, or that their distance from the tablet upon which the picture is delineated should be shortened or lengthened, this, I say, being the case and the difficulty to which the eye was to be adapted, we find its several parts capable of being occasionally changed, and a most artificial apparatus provided to produce that change. This is far beyond the common regulator of a watch, which requires the touch of a foreign hand to set it, but is not altogether unlike Harrison's contrivance for making a watch regulate itself by inserting within it a machinery which, by the artful use of the different expansion of metals, preserves the equability of the motion under all the various temperatures of heat and cold in which the instrument may happen to be placed. The ingenuity of this last contrivance has been justly praised. Shall, therefore, a structure which differs from it, chiefly by surpassing it, be accounted no contrivance at all, or, if it be a contrivance, that it is without a contriver? But this, though much, is not the whole. By different species of animals, the faculty we are describing is possessed in degrees suited to the different range of vision which their mode of life and of procuring their food requires. Birds, for instance, in general, procure their food by means of their beak, and the distance between the eye and the point of the beak being small, it becomes necessary that they should have the power of seeing very near objects distinctly. On the other hand, from being often elevated much above the ground, living in air and moving through it with great velocity, they require, for their safety as well as for assisting them in descrying their prey, a power of seeing at a great distance, a power of which, in birds of rapine, surprising examples are given. The fact accordingly is that two peculiarities are found in the eyes of birds, both tending to facilitate the change upon which the adjustment of the eye to different distances depends. The one is a bony, yet in most species a flexible rim or hoop, surrounding the broadest part of the eye, which, confining the action of the muscles to that part, increases the effect of their lateral pressure upon the orb, by which pressure its axis is elongated for the purpose of looking at very near objects. The other is an additional muscle called the marsupium, to draw on occasion the crystalline lens back, and so fit the same eye for the viewing of very distant objects. By these means the eyes of birds can pass from one extreme to another of their scale of adjustment, with more ease and readiness than the eyes of other animals. The eyes of fishes also, compared with those of terrestrial animals, 
exhibit certain distinctions of structure adapted to their state and element. We have already observed upon the figure of the crystalline compensating by its roundness the density of the medium through which their light passes, to which we have to add that the eyes of fish, in their natural and indolent state, appear to be adjusted to near objects, in this respect differing from the human eye as well as those of quadrupeds and birds. The ordinary shape of the fish's eye being in a much higher degree convex than that of land animals, a corresponding difference attends its muscular conformation, viz. that it is throughout calculated for flattening the eye. The iris also in the eyes of fish does not admit of contraction. This is a great difference, of which the probable reason is that the diminished light in water is never too strong for the retina. In the eel, which has to work its head through sand and gravel, the roughest and harshest substances, there is placed before the eye, and at some distance from it, a transparent, horny, convex case or covering which, without obstructing the sight, defends the organ. To such an animal could anything be more wanted or more useful? Thus, in comparing the eyes of different kinds of animals, we see, in their resemblances and distinctions, one general plan laid down, and that plan varied with the varying exigencies to which it is to be applied. There is one property, however, common, I believe, to all eyes, at least to all which have been examined, namely, that the optic nerve enters the bottom of the eye, not in the center or middle, but a little on one side, not in the point where the axis of the eye meets the retina, but between that point and the nose. The difference which this makes is that no part of an object is unperceived by both eyes at the same time. In considering vision as achieved by the means of an image formed at the bottom of the eye, we can never reflect without wonder upon the smallness yet correctness of the picture, the subtlety of the touch, the fineness of the lines. A landscape of five or six square leagues is brought into a space of half an inch diameter, yet the multitude of objects which it contains are all preserved, are all discriminated in their magnitudes, positions, figures, colors. The prospect from Hampstead Hill is compressed into the compass of a sixpence, yet circumstantially represented. A stagecoach traveling at its ordinary speed for half an hour passes in the eye only over one-twelfth of an inch, yet is this change of place in the image distinctly perceived throughout its whole progress, for it is only by means of that perception that the motion of the coach itself is made sensible to the eye. If anything can abate our admiration of the smallness of the visual tablet compared with the extent of vision, it is a reflection which the view of nature leads us every hour to make, viz., that in the hands of the Creator, great and little are nothing. Sturmius held that the examination of the eye was a cure for atheism. Beside that conformity to optical principles which its internal constitution displays, and which alone amounts to a manifestation of intelligence having been exerted in its structure, beside this, which forms no doubt the leading character of the organ, there is to be seen, in everything belonging to it and about it, an extraordinary degree of care and anxiety for its preservation, due, if we may so speak, to its value and its tenderness. It is lodged in a strong, deep, bony socket, composed by the junction of seven different bones, hollowed out at their edges. In some few species, as that of the Coatimundi, the orbit is not bony throughout, but whenever this is the case, the upper, which is the deficient part, is supplied by a cartilaginous ligament, a substitution which shows the same care. Within this socket it is embedded in fat, of all animal substances the best adapted both to its repose and motion. It is sheltered by the eyebrows, an arch of hair which, like a thatched penthouse, 
prevents the sweat and moisture of the forehead from running down into it. But it is still better protected by its lid. Of the superficial parts of the animal frame, I know none which, in its office and structure, is more deserving of attention than the eyelid. It defends the eye, it wipes it, it closes it in sleep. Are there, in any work of art whatever, purposes more evident than those which this organ fulfills, or an apparatus for executing those purposes, more intelligible, more appropriate, or more mechanical? If it be overlooked by the observer of nature, it can only be because it is obvious and familiar. This is a tendency to be guarded against. We pass by the plainest instances, whilst we are exploring those which are rare and curious, by which conduct of the understanding we sometimes neglect the strongest observations, being taken up with others which, though more recondite and scientific, are, as solid arguments, entitled to much less consideration. In order to keep the eye moist and clean, which qualities are necessary to its brightness and its use, a wash is constantly supplied by a secretion for the purpose, and the superfluous brine is conveyed to the nose through a perforation in the bone as large as a goose quill. When once the fluid has entered the nose, it spreads itself upon the inside of the nostril, and is evaporated by the current of warm air, which, in the course of respiration, is continually passing over it. Can any pipe or outlet for carrying off the waste liquor from a dye-house or a distillery be more mechanical than this is? It is easily perceived that the eye must want moisture. But could the want of the eye generate the gland which produces the tear, or bore the hole by which it is discharged, a hole through a bone? It is observable that this provision is not found in fish, the element in which they live supplying a constant lotion to the eye. It were, however, injustice to dismiss the eye as a piece of mechanism, without noticing that most exquisite of all contrivances, the nictitating membrane, which is found in the eyes of birds and of many quadrupeds. Its use is to sweep the eye, which it does in an instant, to spread over it the lacrimal humor, to defend it also from sudden injuries, yet not totally, when drawn upon the pupil, to shut out the light. The commodiousness with which it lies folded up in the upper corner of the eye, ready for use and action, and the quickness with which it executes its purpose, are properties known and obvious to every observer. But what is equally admirable, though not quite so obvious, is the combination of two different kinds of substance, muscular and elastic, and of two different kinds of action, by which the motion of this membrane is performed. It is not, as in ordinary cases, by the action of two antagonist muscles, one pulling forward and the other backward, that a reciprocal change is effected, but it is thus. The membrane itself is an elastic substance, capable of being drawn out by force like a piece of elastic gum, and by its own elasticity returning when the force is removed to its former position. Such being its nature, in order to fit it up for its office, it is connected by a tendon or thread with a muscle in the back part of the eye. This tendon or thread, though strong, is so fine as not to obstruct the sight even when it passes across it. And the muscle itself, being placed in the back part of the eye, derives from its situation the advantage not only of being secure, but of being out of the way, which it would hardly have been in any position that could be assigned to it in the anterior part of the orb where its function lies. When the muscle behind the eye contracts, the membrane, by means of the communicating thread, is instantly drawn over the fore part of it. When the muscular contraction, which is a positive and most probably a voluntary effort, ceases to be exerted, the elasticity alone of the membrane brings it back again to its position. 
Does not this, if anything can do it, bespeak an artist, master of his work, acquainted with his materials? Of a thousand other things, say the French academicians, quote, we perceive not the contrivance, because we understand them only by the effects, of which we know not the causes. But we here treat of a machine, all the parts whereof are visible, and which need only be looked upon to discover the reasons of its motion and action. Close quote. In the configuration of the muscle, which, though placed behind the eye, draws the nictitating membrane over the eye, there is what the authors, just now quoted, deservedly call a marvelous mechanism. I suppose this structure to be found in other animals, but in the memoirs from which this account is taken it is anatomically demonstrated only in the cassowary. The muscle is passed through a loop formed by another muscle, and is there inflected as if it were round a pulley. This is a peculiarity, and observe the advantage of it. A single muscle with a straight tendon, which is the common muscular form, would have been sufficient if it had had power to draw far enough. But the contraction necessary to draw the membrane over the whole eye required a longer muscle than could lie straight at the bottom of the eye. Therefore, in order to have a greater length in a less compass, the cord of the main muscle makes an angle. This, so far, answers the end, but still further, it makes an angle not round a fixed pivot, but round a loop formed by another muscle, which second muscle, whenever it contracts, of course twitches the first muscle at the point of inflection, and thereby assists the action designed by both. End of section 3